Hello, Spawn listeners. This is Liz. And this week, we really wanted to bring back a favorite episode from a few years back that you may have missed. Stay tuned for our chat with author and columnist Melinda Wenner Moyer. If you have gotten anything about parenting sent to you in recent weeks by a friend, it was probably from her. She's been blowing up lately. She's incredible. I really want you to hear this episode about parenting strategies to help us grow our kids into the kinds of good, kind, resilient, responsible adults who will make us proud. Welcome to Spawn, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Liz Gumpener. And I'm Kristen Chase, and we're the founders of CoolMomPicks.com. Today, we are talking with author Melinda Wenner Moyer about how not to raise assholes. <laughs> That's a good thing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> also, it means, yay, we get to curse. So, yes. you know, we'll make sure to check that little not or explicit or whatever the button says on Apple Podcasts. So if you have little ones, get them out of the room now. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, we'll close out our show with our cool picks of the week. We'll be jumping into this discussion right after this. This episode is brought to you by Camp Tuku. If you have a child ages 6 to 14, Camp Tuku is where nature meets joyful minds. This exceptionally beautiful co-ed sleepaway camp has two locations, including one resting in 1,000 acres of pristine wilderness in the Catskill Mountains of New York, surrounded by stunning lakes, breathtaking waterfalls, and miles of hiking trails. Sounds kind of good to me right now. Camp Tuku's activities are designed to engage the whole child, mind, body, and heart. That means their week-long session will be packed with traditional summer camp activities like aquatics and boating, archery, hiking, crafts, drama, team building, innovations and STEAM activities, and more. While a focus on mindfulness also incorporates mindfulness practices to help kids develop resilience, empathy, focus, gratitude, confidence, and resourcefulness. So many good things. At the end of the day, your kids will get to settle down in beautifully modern bunks at Camp Tuku with children their age from all over the country some of whom may turn out to be their friends for life. To learn more about Camp Tuku in Huguenot, New York, just go to camptuku.org. That's Camp Tuku, T-U-K-U dot org. Sign them up for a one-week session today and use code CMP23UUTK. That's CMP23UUTK. You'll receive a $50 discount on your child's registration for either Camp Tuku, New York or Camp Tuku in Arizona. The offer expires March 31st, 2023. Again, use code CMP23UUTK at camptuku.org. You can find all the information in our show notes for today's episode right here in the app or visit coolmonpics.com. And thanks so much to Camp Tuku for graciously sponsoring this episode of Spawned. We have to say, it's not the book you might think from the title, (laughs) How to Raise Kids Who Are an Asshole. Because at first I was thinking like, oh, is this going to be like one of those like snarky, you suck as a parent books? Like I wasn't sure. And then I saw the subhead, you know, science. And I went, ooh, my dad a nerd, (laughs) like radar went up. And I was like, cool. (laughs) Really what it's about is raising kids who will be good adults. Or Mm. as she writes, how to foster generosity, honesty, kindness, ambition, and resilience, and stamp out rudeness, entitlement, arrogance, sexism, and racism. It's really good. And we are so excited to talk more about it. So welcome, Melinda. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a good book. Yeah. It's so good. Yes. Like I like Kristen's like, 
wait till you read it. It's so good. And I was like, oh my God, it is. It's so good. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. We love science, Melinda. So we just want to put that out there. No subtext to that, right, Liz? (laughs) We are fans of science. So I want to talk to you first because this is a parenting book and you actually didn't get into the science of character and all of these things. You weren't like, hey, I'm going to write a parenting book and now you're on a parenting podcast. So how did this all come about? (laughs) Yeah, I definitely did not plan to write a parenting book. And if you had told me 10 years ago that I was going to write one, I would be like, you're totally lying. (laughs) Not (laughs) In part because like, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. And so who am I to write a parenting book? That's like always how I felt about parenting books. Like, I feel like I shouldn't be telling people what to do. I'm a science journalist. So for the past 15 years, I've been writing all sorts of articles, but always like based in science in some way. And then I had kids. And Mm. when my son was born, I just had like a gazillion questions about how to do things and what advice to listen to. And I found that like science was my like solace. Like I would go to science with every question that I had. And I found like answers to things that I never thought I would find answers to. And I started writing a parenting column for Slate where I was Mm. using science to answer parenting questions. And then two and a half years ago, I felt like there was just so much bad behavior that I was seeing all around And the Me Too movement had just started and all of these allegations were coming out of all this bad behavior. And I just really started worrying about who my kids were going to become and what they were learning from all this bad behavior. So in the past, I was answering a lot of questions about vaccines and using science to answer really straightforward questions. I started having these more existential questions where I was like, how do I make sure that my kids grow up to be good human beings? And I started talking with other parents and they were kind of having that same realization that like, wow, you know, what really seems to matter right now. And what a lot of parents were thinking about was like, how do we just raise good people in this mess of badness, (laughs) which is what it felt like to me Mm -hmm. anyway. And so that is the point at which I realized, okay, I really want to answer this question. It's a really big question. Maybe it's big enough for a book. And I started looking at the science and I realized there was actually tons of really interesting and counterintuitive science on raising good human beings that really hadn't been translated to a lay audience. And that's when I was like, you know what? I think I should write this book and it feels really important. And if I base it in science, then it feels less like I'm telling people what to do based on like my own opinion. And now we're here and now I'm on your podcast. <laughs> but, but your opinion is that you want to raise kind kids. I mean, you just discussed this, but in the intro of the book, you talked about how this was kind of in response to the cruelty of the world or that was yeah. increasingly enveloping our country. And so it is an opinion, which is I want to raise kind kids. And that's not everybody. You know, one thing that really struck me in the intro is how you talked about the data of what parents want for their kids and that we want to raise kind kids. But you also talk about this kind of dichotomy where in our culture, we associate kindness with weakness and that we look at successful, powerful people. And for years, this kind of asshole behavior has been overlooked, forgiven. It's like, it's even expected. Like, well, of course he's an asshole. That's why he's a successful producer. And I was thinking about how much this overlapped, even very recent events with major CEOs getting called out for like abusive behavior over the years. I just thought that was so interesting because I know you were writing more in response to things that went over the last couple of years, but this is very timely right now. So I'm wondering if you think this is changing, like this idea of associating kindness with weakness or that, you know, you should be an asshole. That's how you get ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, I do feel like it's changing. And also when I looked at the research on this, it really challenged that idea that if you're kind, you're going to get like walked all over. You're not going to be successful. That's really 
kind of the opposite of what the research says. It's really interesting. And actually Adam Grant wrote a whole book on this called Give and Take, which is essentially the argument that like the most successful people are actually the most generous and the most kind, which does go against, I think, a lot of our ideas and a lot of examples in the world recently. There's lots of research on this, actually. One study that I thought was fascinating followed boys from the time they were in kindergarten. I don't know why it was just boys, but um, from the time they were in kindergarten, until they were 25 and they observed the boys in their kindergarten classrooms and saw, you know, how generous and kind and compassionate they were and helpful. And they found that the boys who were the kindest and most helpful in kindergarten made the most money at age 25. They were also the least likely to have spent any time in prison. There's essentially just like all of these, I know Mm. all these really good outcomes associated with kindness. And I think that part of it is like, we have this idea for some reason that you can't be kind and compassionate and also be like assertive and be able to stand up for yourself. And I don't know why we have that idea because those two things can completely coexist. Like you can be a good, kind person and also just, you know, be a strong person and be able to stand up for yourself and not be walked all over. And so I I don't know why this idea exists in our heads, but I think it's really inaccurate. That's fascinating. I try to differentiate kind and nice with my kids because I think those are two different things. Mm. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't know if there's any research on that, but I do feel like we can be kind, like you said, and still be assertive, still make sure our voice is being heard. But there's something about nice. And I I feel like this often gets put on women, right? Like you need to be nice, right? Which Mm -hmm. is different than being kind, right? Like I can be kind and respectful of someone, but I can also make sure my voice voices heard. Sometimes I feel like when we say, you know, you need to be nice, there is this subtext of like, you need to give in, you need to do what you're told. I don't know if you feel that same way. Liz, I I would be curious to hear what you think too. I always think niceness is more about how people will perceive you and kindness is more about what you're doing for others. There's less perception in there. Okay. Okay. And I think about it as someone who lives in New York city. Like people always say, Oh, New Yorkers are rude. I'm like, no, we're just rushed. (laughs) We're really busy. (laughs) But like you ever ask a New Yorker, like, Hey, I'm trying to get to the world trade center. And they'll be like, ah, the ticket subway, but make sure you get on this line and be in the front and use this. You know what? I'll walk you there. (laughs) I can't tell you how many people I have walked to the subway to make sure they got on the right one. You're an extra special New Yorker, Liz. Yeah, but I see that all the time. I see that all the time. You see like a elderly person fall in the street and 20 people will rush over to help. They're still like cursing and, you know, like what I think people (laughs) consider like rudeness of the rest of the country, but like New Yorkers are like, look out for you. What about you, Melinda? Do you differentiate nice and kind? I'm just curious. I I mean, I really hadn't thought of it the way that you just described it in terms of like kindness is sort of outward, like what you do for others and and niceness is perception. But I I, kind of do agree with that. And yeah, there's something about nice that also kind of implies that you'll diffuse conflict and you be passive and and give in to Mm. others to avoid conflict. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, and I think that that's different from kindness. Kindness Mm -hmm. is how you're treating others and, and what choices you're making in how you treat others and interact with others. It's hard for me to put into words, but I do agree there's a difference there. And you actually brought up gender, which I thought was interesting that they did a study on kindergarten boys specifically. Do you (laughs) see things changing in terms of the imperative for all kids to be kind and not seeing it as like an exclusively feminine trait, which I think maybe traditionally it's been? Mm -hmm. I think so. I hope so. But I still think there's so much different in the way that we raise girls and boys still. I mean, looking at the research on how 
early kids adopt and accept gender stereotypes and notice them. I mean, our culture is still sending very strong messages to girls about, you know, your appearance matters and being kind and passive matters. Actually, here's an example from my kid's life that really made me angry. I have a 10 year old and this was, I think two years ago, the end of the school year, the teacher decided to give out awards to every student. And she sent out the list of like, who got what award to all the parents. And it was so shocking the gender divide in terms of what she was celebrating in the girls versus the boys, the girls, there was a best dressed, there was a kindest, <laughs> and there was Jeez. like a sweetest, mm-hmm. all the smart ones were boys. It was like what? smartest, oh best at math. I mean, it was insane. Wow. I, Let I me could in not there. believe it. <laughs> So like, that's just one example of the ways that kids are getting these messages that like girls should be sweet and give in and go out of their way to please others and boys should be smart and, you know, do math. It's ridiculous. Well, it's it's good to hear that the research says it starts early, right? I think parents need to hear that reminder, you know, because you're like, oh, well, you know, it's just like, it doesn't start until later. Oh, it starts. I mean, I think about like preschool and play kitchens and all those kinds of things. And you talk about that with toys and, and we've done segments on girl toys versus boy toys, but this is actually a really good segue as we go into um, there's so many things to talk about with this book, but I, I want to talk about selfishness, right? Because this is a challenge. And I think about this often. Also, I'm raising three girls and one boy. And I and I do think there's a divide here. But, you know, developmentally, kids are supposed to be a little self-centered, right? Like part of being too outwardly focused in your attention and you're taking care of the needs of others can be a result of trauma. And then being too self-centered, you don't want your kids to only care about themselves, right? Which is selfishness. So how how do we find the middle ground? I want to know, how do we find a place where kids are advocates for themselves, right? But they also value kindness and thinking of others. And you actually talk about this a couple times in different ways, right? In the I'm perfect chapter, but also when you talk about selfishness. Yeah, I certainly agree. Kids are supposed to be self-centered. And I actually say in the book, like, I think sometimes kids are supposed to be assholes because <laughs> like, you know, they have to challenge boundaries in order to discover where they are. They have to break rules in order to understand them. And so much of what we consider like kind or good behavior is learned, you know, it's like cultural expectations and it's not innate. I mean, if you think of manners and politeness, I remember the first time somebody wanted to shake my son's hand and he was like, what are you doing? Like holding your <laughs> hand out to me. Why are you sticking a hand in my face? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is weird when you think about it, right? <laughs> yeah. A lot of these politeness expectations, you know, they have to be learned. These are things kids are not born knowing. And a lot of what I talk about, I think in the book too, is pointing out that sometimes our expectations of kids and what we think they can do and they have the capacity for is really unrealistic. Like sometimes we think kids are defying us on purpose and they're trying to make us mad when really like they're really overwhelmed or, you know, they can't behave in the way that we expect. And we just have this idea that they should know better. And so that's a really important thing to keep in mind in order to help us respond more constructively when our kids are quote unquote misbehaving. You do a really good job also of explaining Mm -hmm. examples where you can teach your kids behaviors that indicate more selfless or kindness or benevolence, but about giving them more reasons instead of just saying, for example, you said, pick up your Legos, you have to pick up your Legos. You said instead say, when you pick up your Legos, then somebody won't get hurt by accidentally stepping on one. So like you're always connecting the why to the behavior to help kids understand that there's a greater good. It's not just because I said so. That's so huge. Can you talk more about that? This feels big to me. Like this is a really big deal. You know, Liz and I, we're not super fans of the like, 
because I said so style of parenting, real authoritative kind of parenting, right? Which has been described by lots of experts, but talk more about that. Like, why is this so huge? So what I think you're describing there is authoritarian parenting, right? Yes. The, yes. The, because you said so. Yeah. Which I, I hate that the two words are so similar. Authoritative is actually like the good one. The one where right. you aren't saying that. Yes. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. <laughs> and when my husband read that chapter, he was like, oh my God, why? These words are so confusing. You have to like figure out. And I think I put italics in to try to like make it easier, but it's so confusing. Anyway, back to your question. Yeah. I was so fascinated by this research on what's called induction, which is essentially like always tying your kids' actions and or their choices or the things you're requesting of them to their effects on other people. Mm. So the idea is, yeah, you're, you're constantly trying to help them relate themselves to others. And this is part of the development of a skill called theory of mind, which I talk about a lot in the book. And theory of mind is essentially like the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and to take their perspective. And it's something we, most adults anyway, do all the time, but it's actually a really complex skill. And most kids, when they're really young, they, they can really only think of like how they're feeling. And, and, you know, they kind of assume everyone else feels the same way they do. And to actually make that jump and realize like, oh, I can feel one way and my friend can feel a totally different way. That's, that's actually pretty complicated for their brains, but talking about, you know, how our kids behavior affects others, always trying to tie it to the sort of bigger picture is a really helpful way to foster the development of theory of mind, as is just talking about feelings, mm -hmm. which I talk about a lot and letting your kids have feelings. Because if you think about it in order to really like perceive another person's state of mind and figure out like how to help them or be generous to them, you have to be able to understand what they're feeling. And you have to be able to sort of read their facial expression or their body language and figure out like, oh, okay, my friend's upset right now and kind of figure out like why they're upset. And this really requires kids to be very well-versed in the world of emotions. And the best way to do that is to practice, to talk about it as a family, to, you know, be reading a book and talk about what a particular character might be feeling, to talk about your own feelings and to like, let your kids have their feelings and validate them too, because in order to really understand feelings, we have to let our kids have their own feelings and experience them and figure them out. Yes. When we like shame kids, which I think we're doing it from a good place when our kids are upset and we're like, no, no, it's okay. Don't be, you're not, you don't need to be sad or this is not a big deal. We mean well, and we're trying to say like, we wish you would feel better. We're trying to help them. But actually that kind of belittling of their emotions and their mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. makes them kind of feel ashamed for having that feeling. And then they try to sort of bottle it up. And then that's kind of counterproductive. Yes. You know, I, I've mentioned this anecdote here before, but one of the greatest lessons I learned from my kid, and by the way, your dedication to your kids who are always teaching you, that's what I say to my kids all the time. So I fell in love with your oh, book wow. right from there. But when my daughter Sage is now a teenager, when she was probably four, I think we were watching like, the 10 commandments on TV. And she got very sad about the Pharaoh casting Moses out. It was like a very intense scene. And she started crying. She was very sensitive. And I was like, Oh, don't be sad. Like, you know, there's a happy ending. And she looked at me at four years old and said, mom, don't tell me, don't be sad. That's like saying, don't be sage, which is her name. Oh, I wow. love that story. <laughs> I know I correct myself when I start to say like, Oh, don't be. And then I go, okay, you are feeling sad. And I hear that you are feeling sad. You know, like, so I've tried to like adjust that based on her. And I'm glad that you reinforce that. And I also like you mentioned about authoritative parenting. I really love the whole section on parenting strategies because one of the things this book does, it doesn't just tell you all the things you're doing wrong and it doesn't feel shaming at all. It just really feels helpful and supportive. And I really like 
that you talked about how good it can be as an exercise to step back and articulate your parenting style or the one you want to have in order to raise kind kids. And so you talked about how authoritative parents versus authoritarian or permissive or neglecting parents tend to have kids who thrive the most. And that made me really stop and think like, ooh, like what am I doing right and wrong here? So tell me, what does that entail? Like what is an authoritative, not authoritarian, authoritative parent? Like what does that mean that we do? So first, let me just explain what parenting style means because I feel like that's one of those terms that's kind of vague. And like, what is that even referring mm-hmm. to? Yeah. It's like the <laughs> emotional climate that parents create in the house or just with their kids that shapes how they interact with their kids, their expectations of their kids, their attitudes toward their kids. And yes, there are essentially four main kinds. There's a lot of research on parenting styles. And the one that very clearly is linked with the best outcomes in kids is this authoritative parenting style. And I mean, what's great, I think about this parenting style is it's kind of like the middle ground, (laughs) like where Mm -hmm. authoritarian Mm -hmm. is like really harsh and there's a lot of punishment and it's just very hierarchical. Like they're the parents that say like, because I said so. And like, don't, don't ask any questions, just do what you're told. And then there's like permissive parenting, which is really like, there isn't a hierarchy and the kids kind of make their own decisions. And the authoritative parenting is really the middle ground and it's parenting where the parents are demanding in the sense that they have boundaries and rules and expectations for their kids, but they're also very warm and responsive and affectionate. And they treat their kids with more of a respect than the authoritarian parents do, Mm -hmm. where like, if you ask your child to do something, if an authoritative parent asks the child to do something and the child's like, well, why, why do I have to do that? The authoritative parent will engage with them and say, well, here's why, you know, they give the rationale and they're willing to negotiate sometimes. Like if a child has a really good reason for not wanting to do it right then or something, instead of yelling at the kid and saying, just do it. The authoritative parent is like, oh, that's a good point. Okay. Well, what about if you do it in an hour after you've finished playing soccer Mm -hmm, or whatever? mm -hmm. So there's just much more of like a give and take a back and forth and a respect that those parents give to their kids, but they still do have expectations and they still, you know, have these boundaries. The kids can't get away with everything or anything, but like, there is just like this nice balance of affection and warmth with the high expectations and boundaries. It's like Goldilocks. It's the just right. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It totally is. I identify with that. I'm a Goldilocks parent. I have this whole authoritative authoritarian. The, the <laughs> I don't want to get it confused because truly they are vastly, vastly different. And I think what was so say satisfying because that type of parenting, the authoritative parenting can get criticized by a lot of people, right? Because it looks in some ways like you're giving in. It looks like you don't necessarily have rules. But what I've always explained to people is that if you don't have those boundaries and rules, your kids wouldn't be the way that your kids are, which like I think of my kids as lovely and kind and empathic and wonderful. Like there is a different type of result I've seen in my work as a therapist a long time ago, right, with authoritarian parenting. There's fear, there's worry, there's increased anxiety. And I know I'm rattling off words, but you've done the research and you've said and you say in the book, like, there's so much out there scientifically that supports authoritative parenting, right? Yes, there is. I mean, there's so many good outcomes linked with it. It's like kids are happier. They do better in school. They're less likely to use drugs. They're less anxious and depressed. I mean, 
kind of like anything you can imagine they are on the good end of it. It's mm-hmm. pretty amazing. But that isn't to say that like you can still do everything quote unquote right as a parent and have kids who struggle. And I think oh, that's yeah. what's really hard. Like I've always joked that nothing smacks the smug off your face as a first time parent as having a second kid. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my kid sleeps perfectly every time I put her to bed and she eats all the foods. And then you have a second kid who's like, won't eat anything and doesn't sleep. And you realize it's not you, that some kids are just born differently than other kids. Yeah, that's absolutely true. My two kids are very, very different. And the research is based on averages. And so on average, the best parenting style is authoritative, you know, but there are individual differences. And also kids are just going to respond differently to different approaches. And I try to kind of give different approaches in the book, like depending, because kids have different temperaments. Some things are going to work. Some types of conversations are going to work for some kids and not others. And you do need to trust what you know about your kids. I mean, as a parent, you know your children better than anyone else. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. And so if you read about a strategy or an approach and you're like, I really don't think that that would mesh with my kid, that's something you should listen to too. Mm -hmm. I mean, in thinking about our parenting style, right, we're looking at ourselves. And I think that there's a lot of this book that's going to have parents looking at themselves, right? Like for me, it was about resilience, you know, not being afraid to try things and fail at them, right? Being able to not worry about not being successful. But there are other traits too. You know, you talk about anti-racism, which we'll talk about in a minute. There are many things I think where we as parents need to look at ourselves. And I'm wondering how does that work? You know, because some of this might feel counterintuitive for a lot of parents because many of us were raised with rewards or we were told like, you're so smart, you know, and that's not really what the research says. So I'm just curious to hear, maybe you've had responses or maybe you've encountered situations as you've been out and talking to other parents where they're like, oh man, this really made me look at myself and I'm not sure I can do this because this wasn't how I was raised. Like, have you seen any of that or experienced any of that? Yeah. I mean, I've experienced it myself because I found so much of the research really surprising and kind of completely upending what I thought Mm. (laughs) I should be doing and or how I was raised. I mean, yes, my parents would always say things like, you're so smart and you're so good at the piano. But I also think, well, I I think a lot of things about this. Some of these strategies, like if you're using things that are maybe not what the research suggests are the most constructive, that does not mean you're going to like ruin your kid. Because as you just said, like so many of us were raised with parents who did things that when it turns out and you look at the research, maybe weren't the most constructive things that they could have done to foster whatever motivation, et cetera. But like, we're fine, you know? So I think there's definitely a leeway there. But yes, I have had parents say, gosh, this is, you know, especially like with the anti-racism chapter, like, wow, you know, I really had to do some reflecting and some thinking because this is completely different from how I thought about this. And I've had some people give, you know, even a little pushback, like especially with my gender chapter in terms of they want to really celebrate the femininity of their daughter. And it's uncomfortable for them to think about what the downsides of that could be because it is surprising and counterintuitive and maybe goes against what we've been doing. Some of this is kind of hard to read and hard to accept. And I completely get that. Mm -hmm. I think both of us were very grateful and pleased that you talk a lot about raising anti-racist kids who will, we hope, grow up to be anti-racist adults. I think I was surprised, like when I read the whole intro to the book, how much of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Black Lives Matter protests and police involvement impacted your desire to write the book and think about like how kids get to be the way they are as adults. 
results. I really like that you base it again in research. It's not just feelings. And some of the research I think might surprise some of our listeners. Is there a study or two that stood out to you or maybe surprised you also? Yes, (laughs) there were a lot, but I'll try to (laughs) whittle it down. (laughs) Um, One of the big ones, I think a lot of white parents in particular have the idea that if they don't talk about race or skin color, their kids just won't see it. Like they won't Mm -hmm. notice it. They won't make a big deal out of it. And so it's just best that that's an approach called colorblind parenting. And it's very common among white families, but the research really directly contradicts that because kids do see skin color. In fact, babies do. There's been research with babies as young as three months old, showing that they can tell the difference between people of different skin color. And actually they prefer looking at pictures of adults who share the same skin color as their caregivers. So we know kids see race, even if you live in a predominantly white community too, like they're going to see it in the media. They're going to see it in books, et cetera. And we also know that kids, they see patterns in the world. Like one of their big jobs really is to kind of figure out why does the world look the way it does? What matters? Like, what should I be paying attention to? And so they're looking for patterns in the world and they definitely notice that there's a racial hierarchy in our society. Mm -hmm. And they see that white people tend to have more power, more money, more prestige. And those two things combine the fact that, you know, they see skin color and they see that it matters in some important way when it comes to power in our world. That unfortunately leads kids sometimes if their parents don't explain to them why the hierarchy exists and that racism plays a huge role in defining this hierarchy, then they kind of come to the most simple conclusion, which is, well, maybe white people are just better. Mm. And there's research showing that kids, I mean, as young as preschool are saying racist things to their friends, they don't always bring it home, which is why a lot of parents don't realize this is happening. But I talk to preschool teachers who say they see it all the time. Like kids saying, you can't play on this swing because you're black, or I don't like your skin color, or, you know, your skin is dirty, all these things. So the research really shows like kids do see race and they, they make these assumptions and conclusions that are often very biased based on this hierarchy. They So we need to interrupt that process and we need to explain why the hierarchy exists. We need to also like normalize conversations around skin color and race because we want our kids to come to us with questions and we want to be the ones explaining why things are the way they are and what it means to have different skin color. We don't really want them to be inventing these ideas or, or even like getting the information from their friends who might not be very reliable sources of information. Like we want to be the ones to be doing that. Absolutely. You know, there's a really good book called Nurture Shock. I would also recommend people read if you want to know more about that. And for you, whether you're a parent or not, to read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson is about the hierarchy and the caste system we have in this country grounded in race. And I cannot stop recommending it enough. It's really helpful. So let me just ask you, I know a lot of parents struggle with how to be open with their kids about all these things right? Kindness and gender and success and sex and, and all the, the hard things, everything. <laughs> but the research shows that actually the more open we are, the better our kids will be. So how do we go about doing this in a way that you think will be effective and not scary or traumatizing, especially for us? <laughs> a lot of parents really have trouble still talking about sex. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are really tough topics because we have been socialized to avoid talking about them. I mean, right, a lot yeah. of us were raised in families that taught us like, do not talk about this. So it kind of goes against like all of our fibers to have these conversations with our kids. And I guess I just want to normalize that awkwardness and that mm-hmm. discomfort because I think we all have it. But I think there's a couple of things I will say. One is like, once you start having a conversation, once you kind of open the, the door to the conversation, it does get easier. Like once I started talking to my kids about race, I realized I'm not going to get it perfect the first time, but like it got easier. It just started getting easier. The more I did it. 
I think what's really hard too, is like, how do you start or where do you start? Or, you know, do you just sit down with your kids and say, okay, let's talk about race. And I think that really can feel contrived and too formal and very uncomfortable. So what I suggest sometimes is that we really look for opportunities in our daily lives in like, even the TV shows we're watching with our kids, the movies, the books. I I love using books as kind of a conversation starter. There's so many great books on so many of these difficult topics. And I will say right here, Cool Mom Picks has the most outstanding roundups of children's books to talk to your kids about pretty much any subject under the sun. That's awesome. Because sometimes that can really help in terms of giving us the language and the frameworks in which to introduce these really (laughs) difficult topics. We can, you know, read the books with our kids and then we realize, okay, this is how I can talk to them about it. Mm -hmm. And this is the Mm -hmm. language I can use. And that just makes it so much easier. And there's so many great books about sex too, and just everything you can imagine. So I think using the opportunities that are around us at all times, I feel like when there's TV shows on, there's so many times when there's something like, for instance, I feel like so many of the older movies that I've watched with my kids, the bad guys always have dark skin and foreign accents, like almost always. Mm. And I will point that out to my kids. We'll like pause the movie and I'll say, did you notice that like the bad guy in this movie too is also like dark skinned and has a foreign accent? What do you think that's about? Mm -hmm. And kind of like using that to start a conversation. And sometimes starting with questions. If you don't really know like how to raise it, you can say like, did you notice that scene? Like, what do you think just happened there? What sticks out to you about what just happened there? And just like getting a conversation going that way. And I think also being open to about like our own lives. I think mm-hmm. that's also another thing we can do. I think sometimes as parents, we, we want to protect our kids. We don't want to tell them like we had a bad day at work or we're having trouble with a friend. But sometimes if we do it in a way where we're not like putting the problem on their shoulders and we're not expecting them to solve the problem or to bear that problem for us, but we instead sit down with them and sort of share the experience we had today and how we coped with it and why it was difficult. I think that can be really, really valuable. So valuable. Right. Because first of all, it models to our kids that it's okay to talk about your problems Mm -hmm. and the things you're going through that are hard. Mm -hmm. And so that when you do it, it makes it more likely that they'll do it with you and that struggles and challenges are normal. They're part of life, even for adults, they're nothing to be ashamed of. And then too, in talking about what we've gone through and how we coped with it, we're sharing like our coping strategies and our values with our kids. And we're teaching them through those conversations. We're giving them ideas about what they might want to do in a similar situation. Often we shy away from talking about the things we're going through as adults, but I know from the research, this can be really, really useful actually. It's an art for sure though, right? Because like you said, there's a fine line between like dumping or like venting, but also taking those circumstances from our work life or our personal life or whatever is happening and share what went right. And sometimes maybe it's even what we did wrong, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, I really messed up. I got really mad at this person. I felt super bad. I called, I apologize. It actually worked out, but boy, it was stressful. I think it also humanizes us, right? As parents. So they see, oh, they're humans. They mess up. It's okay to mess up. It's okay to do. Or it's okay to be sad and have big feelings sometimes. Right, and, right, right, yeah. right. My kids see me cry about everything. So <laughs> there's no problem with that here. If any of our listeners need tips on how to tell your kids why mommy is crying, like just <laughs> hit me up, you guys. Yes. Well, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention too is with older kids, I often pull things from the news too. I was talking to my son about the whole issue and there was just vitriol being aimed at the black players on the English team when it was the Euro Cup. And we talked uh, about yeah. that. So yes. It was a way to engage him, to get him to talk about anything to me anymore. I know my topics, soccer, 
hockey, you know, like (laughs) travel. I have my list, but that opened up a huge discussion. And I think it's a gateway, right? For us, like, hey, if they're playing video games or they're watching movies, I watched Pitch Perfect last night and I did. (laughs) Apparently Liz and Melinda, both of you are the movie stoppers. I think you need a club. We're calling you the movie stoppers. Liz has done this for years. It's like, I don't know. Are you you feeling like kindred spirits over there? I pause the movie. Yeah. Liz totally pauses movies. And last night, you know, Pitch Perfect, I was pointing out, if you know the movie, you know that the Asian girl in the movie is is a very low talker and she's super weird and super quirky, which is totally what happens to Asian people in movies. We are (sighs) always the weird, quirky people. And I just was like, huh, why do they always do that? I was asking my 12 year old, right? Like, while she's like on her phone and doing four other things while watching the movie, of course. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what do you think about that? And it was just like a great moment, right? To just kind of point out those things. We didn't have a huge discussion about it, but I feel like just kind of naming things and pointing things out really can shake things up. Absolutely. And there's so many opportunities too. I feel like if, once you start looking for them and paying attention to what's happening, it's like constant. When we were watching the Olympics a couple of weeks ago, we noticed it was the women's kayaking and the announcer kept referring to them as girls. And these are 28 year old women. Oh, and, oh, oh yeah. I, I was not having that. <laughs> that was a conversation. Like, that's interesting. Do you think he calls the male kayakers boys? No, <laughs> I doubt it. And so like we had a conversation about that and yeah, there's just so many of these, unfortunately, sometimes bad examples that are coming up, but they're really good fodder for like a brief conversation. Well, Melinda, as you can tell, and as our listeners can tell, we could talk to you all day about this because we barely even touched on half of what's in this book. It is so good. I really urge Mm. you to pick it up. Whatever age your kids are, it's just helpful. It just helps you want to be a better person and raise kids who are good people. And I think we need more of that in the world. It's called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, Science-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Tots to Teens by Melinda Wenner-Moyer. And tell us, where's the best place that we can find you? What's your social media channel of choice? Yes. I would say my website has kind of, it's like a one-stop shop. It's melindawennermoyer.com. And I have a newsletter you can sign up for there, which is free. And every week I address a challenging kid behavior. Like why do kids lose their shit when we ask them to turn off their iPad and what can we do about it? So (laughs) that was one of my recent ones. I love that. And also it has my like Instagram and Twitter on there as well. Well, I know you're on Instagram because you came on my Instagram this week to talk about assholes. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't help. I know I saw you at that post. I was like, this is too perfect. I have to mention my book. And I completely forgot we were talking this week. I was like, it's all meant to be. It all comes together. (laughs) All right. Well, now it's time for our cool picks of the week. Cool picks of the week. Melinda, you're our guest, so you get to share yours first. Okay. I am reading a delightful book called The Thursday Murder Club, which probably a lot of you have read because I think I read things really late. No. But, okay. I love thrillers, but this is like, I don't know. It's so charming. It just makes me so happy. It's funny. It's about a group of older people in a retirement community who solve murders. And it's just wonderful. And it's by Richard Osman, I believe. And it's just, it's just a delightful book. So if you like mysteries, I highly recommend it. Ooh, it's not like hunters. It's not like a Nazi hunter kind of thing, is it? Or maybe it is. <laughs> no. <laughs> Whoa, Liz. I like that too. Well, that was elderly people who went around, oh, you know. Yeah. 
No, this is a little different. <laughs> yeah, not quite as dark. Okay, we will definitely take a look. It sounds fun. Here's my cool pick of the week, Kristen. I think you'll appreciate this one too. I want to give okay. a shout out to all of the summer camp counselors this summer. My stepdaughter was a counselor for the first time. I had multiple kids in multiple camps who worked so hard to keep kids safe and happy and let them be kids again. And just for any kid, teen, young adult who stepped up during a very challenging time to be a counselor and take our mm. kids' safety and health and well-being and mental health into their hands and give them a great summer. I'm really grateful. So my cool pick of the week is everybody out there who opted into summer camp counseling during a very tough summer. Yes, you made our kids' lives, honestly, with that bubble. My kids, I had one that just came home. I have another one that will be home in another weekend. Like, a, yeah. she's there for another week and a half. And just, yes, they did so much for these kids. And not just sleepaway camp. Like, day camp if your kids are like in two hours a day art camp yep. I mean it was it was a really tough year and kids are yes. having trouble you know emerging into the world so I'm just I'm super grateful because there are a lot of young fairly underpaid people doing these jobs and the same way we give shout outs to teachers I just wanted to shout out to all the great counselors out there all right well my cool pick of the week is like a salve for your soul ladies it's a salve mm. it is tattoo redo <laughs> <laughs> On Netflix, I can, I, like, it is joyous, okay? It is so funny. So basically, here's the premise, okay? Person one has a very terrible, awful, horrific tattoo that they got, right? <laughs> friend two or family member two brings friend one to the show to get a cover-up by a famous, fabulous tattoo artist. Plot twist the person with the bad tattoo, though, doesn't get to choose the cover-up. The person who brought them gets to choose it. And the person getting the cover-up will not see the tattoo until what? the end. Dun, dun, dun. Wow. I can't imagine the legal, like, <laughs> contract they have to sign. Yes, I will be willing to get a tattoo, not of my choosing. Oh, well, <laughs> let's just say some of these tattoos. I mean, you hear horror stories, but it's like, I went to school with a kid named Crystal Chandelier. You're like, really? Did you though? Okay, it's an <laughs> urban myth. I'm not kidding. These tattoos are so bad. Anyway, it's like 25 minute show. The host is a comedian. She's funny and cute. I don't know. It's like a little bit anxiety provoking, but mostly it's just very thrilling and easy. And you can sit around and, and not worry about all the stresses that we oh parents my have on us right now. Anyway, tattoo redo. I wish my <laughs> ex were around for that because he had like the world's worst tribal band from yeah. the 80s that Ooh. was so bad. And he That's covered it one. up with a giant tombstone that said R.I.P bad tattoo. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know which was worse, honestly. <laughs> oh my gosh. I would have totally brought him on the show. <laughs> well, there That's you great. Go. I have to watch it. Thank you. It's Kristen. super fun. It's so fun. Anyway, of course, we, we will link up everything from the show, Melinda's book, all of the links we talked about, and of course, all of our cool picks of the week on our podcast page on coolmompicks.com. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Spawned. Huge thanks to our awesome engineer, John Bowen, and our guest, Melinda Wenner-Moyer. Please, I'm not kidding. This book, so good. So, so, so good. And of course, if you've got a moment and you can leave us a five-star review, leave us a little, like, message. We love getting the messages. We put them up on our social media. We would really, really appreciate it. When you do that, you subscribe, you download our episodes. It helps other listeners like you find us. 
And hey, you can also join us in our Spawned podcast community on Facebook, where we chat about the show topics and pretty much anything else you'd like to talk about. We've been a little quieter this summer, but I feel like, you know, back to school's ramping up. We're going to have a lot of yep. help that we need from our fellow parenting community out there. So that's where we'll be asking for it <laughs> and giving it where we can. Thank you so much for listening to Spawned. This is Liz. And this is Kristen. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.